Welcome to day three of our Revival Summit. Again, that picture of a summit. We're on a journey together. The top of that summit, the peak of that summit, the revived life. The normal Christian life, that place of intimacy with God, that place of consistent obedience, that place where we see God's fruit, character, Christ-like character being evidenced in our lives consistently. This is the revived life. This is the norm Christ died that you and I might enjoy that quality of life. Now, as we're talking about evidences of that revived life, characteristics of that revived life, we're talking about generosity. Other things, of course, but generosity. We started last night painting a picture of generous living. So open your workbook tonight, page 17. You're going to find some blank spaces where you can write in the principle tonight, maybe make a note or two concerning the Scripture that we're going to reference. Now remember, we're working our way through a chapter of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to go ahead and put the verses on the screen, or you're welcome, of course, to open your Bible. And we're just taking about a a 10-minute chunk each night to chew on as we're putting together this portrait of generous living. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Pause. Now remember, the city of Corinth was, was an affluent community. It was a seaport city, very affluent, highly immoral as well, but very affluent. As they are growing in their faith, Paul came in preaching the gospel. A church was born there. He's moved on. Titus is now serving as pastor of that church. As they're beginning to grow and mature, he has a concern. He says, I I see you growing in your faith, in your speech, in your knowledge, your earnestness, in your love, but there's one area that you are lagging in, and it was in this area of living generously, of giving. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now again, why do we want to be generous? Why do we want to grow in generosity? Because we want to be more like Christ. Paul points them to the ultimate example of generosity. He who was rich, our Lord Jesus, ruling and reigning over his creation, enjoying the splendors of heaven. And he left that. And through the miracle of incarnation became one of us. And continued to humble himself to the point of death on a cross. He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We want to learn to give so that we might be more like the Lord Jesus. Then beginning at verse 10, And in this matter I give you my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Why was Paul so concerned about them in this thing of giving? Why dedicate a whole chapter, actually it's two chapters in 2 Corinthians, to the topic of giving? Because he was genuinely concerned for their spiritual condition. And he knew that in their current condition, they were going to stagnate spiritually. Our living giving principle tonight goes like this. Giving is essential for your continued spiritual growth. It's not just helpful. I've used a much stronger word. Giving is essential for your continued spiritual growth. Now, I've Pastored again a number of years. I I know that folks often uh, uh, react to any talk about giving or money from the pulpit. And I understand there's been all kinds of abuses out there. But did you know that the Bible has more than 2,300 verses that directly address your relationship to your material possessions? If you're not encouraging your pastor to preach regularly on giving, you're asking him to ignore 2,300 verses in the Bible. Of all Jesus' parables, do you know that two-thirds dealt with the topic of stewardship, our relationship to our material possessions? Jesus said more about giving and money than he said about heaven or hell or prayer or the church. 
Because giving and money is more important than those things? No. Because he knows that we live in a material world and we have this constant pressure to become more enamored with the gift than the giver. And so we find warning after warning in Scripture regarding this issue of our infatuation with material things to the neglect of our spiritual growth and maturity. A couple of questions here as we think about this principle tonight. Uh, are, you, are your giving practices consistent with where you desire to be in your spiritual growth? If the only thing I knew about you, and I don't know this about you, of course, if the only thing I knew about you was what you gave materially to kingdom causes last year, through the church, through missions, or by just your gifts to other members of the body of Christ who are in financial need. If that's all I knew about you, your income and what you gave, what would that say to me about your priorities? About your desire to align with Matthew 6.33 to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things shall be added to you? Would your giving reflect where you want to be spiritually, where you hope that you are spiritually? Or would it indicate a significant difference? Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where the thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Now notice what I've highlighted. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Like it or not, our giving practices reflect where our heart is. Our giving practices are a key indicator of where our heart, because our treasure follows our heart. And so what you treasure, indicated by your giving, is a revealer of your heart. Based on that verse, I'm going to make this statement. You will never handle anything less significant nor more indicative of our inward spiritual condition than money. Less significant in the sense that the instant you step off planet earth into eternity, that won't go with you. None of that goes with you. So it's insignificant in that sense, but it's incredibly important as an indicator of where we are in our spiritual journey. A second takeaway, what, what, what material sacrifices on your part might help to nurture your spiritual life? If you are struggling in this area, how can you adjust your life, align your life in obedience with God? What spiritual sacrifice or what uh, financial sacrifices might God be asking you to make so that you can begin moving and growing spiritually? And finally, is there something God has told you to give in the past and you've not obeyed? I posed that question to you last night as well. Because the moment you say no in any area of Christian living, the moment you say no, that's where you've decided to camp out spiritually and you won't move beyond that area of your life. You know the story of the young man, he's nameless in scripture, we know, know him only as the, the rich young ruler. He's a sharp guy, comes to Jesus and I want to be your disciple, I want to follow you. Now I can see the other disciples they're just standing there salivating. This guy is going to bring incredible credibility to our new ministry. Plus, he's going to bankroll this thing. And man, they've just got these visions of grandeur. And then as Jesus begins his conversation with the man, he discovers that this man is not fully engaged in following Jesus. Jesus says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. But when he heard these things, he was very sad. He was extremely rich. The Scripture is not saying it's a sin to be wealthy. Many godly men throughout Scripture, and women for that matter, were wealthy. But again, they were generous with what God gave them. See, this young man at this point could go no farther in his desire to follow Christ because he was not willing to obey this clear direction from the Lord. When my children were growing up, we would uh, play board games. Now, Monopoly wasn't our favorite, but occasionally we'd pull out the Monopoly board. 
I, went, I remember one specific night. It was me and my, my three children. My oldest son was about seventh grade, you know, kind of that cocky age. And then I had a daughter, sweet girl, fifth, about fifth grade, and then my youngest was about third, kind of in that area. Now, I remember this particular game of Monopoly because I was cleaning up. I mean, you know, at just every roll of the dice, I was getting all the great properties and poor little things, bless their heart. You know, I was just uh, taking them to the cleaners that night. Now, the first one I knocked out was my oldest son. And I'll be honest, I took a little gleeful, uh, you know, happiness, uh, uh, kind of knocking him right out of there, knock him down a notch. All right. Then it came to my daughter. Now, Bless her heart, sweet, sweet thing, but I took her stuff. There were a few tears, but you know they have to learn the hard lessons. All right. Then me and my son, you know, and poor guy just kept landing on all my hotels and you know, all that stuff, and pretty soon he's gone. I'm the winner. So I sit there at the table surveying my financial empire. Properties, houses, hotels, stocks. And then what did I do? I took it all and I put it in the box. And I put the box back on the shelf because it meant nothing in real life. Now there comes a point for the child of God. When God says to you, game over. It's time to come home. Ironically, they put you in a box And hear me, church, you don't bring any of that stuff with you. You've heard the old adage, you can't take it with you. That's right. May I say to you, you can send it on ahead. See, Jesus didn't ask this man to give away everything he had. He asked him to make a trade. Give me the stuff here. You will have treasure in heaven. Anybody out there... uh, kind of a fixer-upper, you like to do projects around the house, you'd rather do it yourself than call somebody else. I see some hands out there. My first two churches that I served were churches that had parsonages. Don't know if you ever lived in a parsonage, Pastor, but you know the way that works is that they give you a house to live in, they promise that they're going to take care of it, and you never see them again, all right? So you just kind of have to learn to be handy. Now, I'm one of those guys I know just enough to be dangerous, you know? So I get in there, and I start on the plumbing, and by the time I finish, I've got to pay the plumber twice what I would have paid if I'd called him in the first place. That's just kind of the guy I am. Well, I found a website a couple of years ago that I really liked. Name of the website, lookifixedit.com. And there's just some creative things. For instance, you've noticed one day your front porch is sagging. Obviously, you need some new columns. You don't really have the budget to go down to Lowe's and get those columns. Little look around the house, and <laughs> there you go. Now, I don't know what's going to happen to Grandma if she breaks another hip, but, you know, you're, you're ready to go. Driving along in the minivan, starts to rain. You turn on the wipers, nothing happens. Well, that's annoying. Just kind of run into the mechanic, auto mechanic, and hey, here's my problem. He gives you a quote. Well, you just, it just would bust the budget. But you got to have windshield wipers. <laughs> I see this guy driving down the road, you know, just kind of doing this action. All right, guys, you bring home a new futon couch for your wife. She's so happy. Until one of your rather robust friends sits on it and just puts a big old crimp right in the middle. All is not lost. A quick trip to the garage and there you go. (laughs) Isn't that attractive, ladies? All right, the wife's in the kitchen. She's baking a cake. You're all excited. And then you hear, oh, no. Well, what's wrong, sweetheart? Oh, man, my, my mixer just burnt out. I can't finish the cake. Whoa, whoa, I can fix that again. Another trip to the garage and why not? (laughs) Why not? All right, you're going to take the kids down to Orlando for a big uh, trip to Disney. That's a long ways, though. You think, I've been wanting to put one of those DVD systems in the car so they can watch, you know, shows Well, you go by Best Buy, get a quote way, way out of your budget. All is not lost. 
laptop, a couple of bungee cords, and you're in business. I don't know how safe that is. They don't seem to be bothered by it. All right, you got that newborn. Ladies, you've been very nervous. First child, hard to go away for any length of time. The husband's been saying, I can take care of this. I got this. You go on to the market by yourself, get your hair done, get your nails done. Just have a good day. I've got it all taken care of. You get back home, and that's what you find. Now, actually, duct tape on a baby is kind of cute. But who thought duct tape on an airplane was a good idea? What were they thinking? All right, here's my favorite. The wife's been after you to add on another bathroom. You finally concede, and you bring in the contractor, but again, just no way. Way, just bust your budget. But she's insistent about that extra bathroom. Well, there you go, sweetheart. <laughs> If you have heard anything Shane said in the last two nights, men, do not do that <laughs> for your safety. <laughs> All right, fixing it up yourself, doing it yourself may work out well when it comes to houses or cars or furniture, but hear me, church. When we bring this mentality of I can do it myself into the Christian life, we will guarantee failure every time. But we bring that mentality into our walk with God. This is where we ended last night, so let's start here tonight. Read it with me again off the screen. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Remember our definition of humility last night? It's, it's not thinking less of you. Humility is thinking more of God and of others. What is that posture of humility before God? A dependence upon the Lord, a conscious dependence upon the Lord, a yieldedness, not my will, but your will be done, a Christ sufficiency. Lord, I can't do this without you. God's opposed to the proud, the independent, the self-sufficient. Oh, but he lavishes grace on those who humble themselves. We have some little bands, little uh, wristbands back at our resource area with the initials G-I-N-Y. Shane's got a ring. He'll show it to you when he's uh, with you tomorrow, and it's got the initials G-I-N-Y. Anybody tell me what G-I-N-Y stands for? Very good. Lou, I heard you say it first. You are the proud winner. <laughs> and if you don't like that color, you can trade it for another one. God, I need you. God, I need you. Now, that may seem silly to put that on a wristband and wear it, but if that's what it takes for you to start thinking throughout the day, God, I need you. I need you at work. I need you as I'm facing temptation. I'm needing you to fulfill my responsibility as a husband, a wife, a father, or a mother. God, I need you. This is the mentality that we must cultivate as the people of God. Take your workbook and open up with me to page 16, and then your Bible. We're in the New Testament tonight, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. Our study tonight is titled, Standing in Grace, Standing in in grace. I found as a pastor through the years, after lots of spiritual conversations with church members, we love to talk about grace, we love to sing about grace, but as the people of God, we typically know very little regarding grace. And so tonight, Again, I don't want to leave anybody behind. We're going to be very foundational. You know, in the course of a Life Action Summit, you're probably not going to hear anything new. You have a godly man and godly pastors and Sunday school teachers who teach you faithfully God's Word. You're probably not going to hear anything new, but you just may hear it from a different perspective, a little different slant that maybe helps cement that truth a little more. A revival truth goes like this. The revived life continues to grow in grace, learning to appropriate God's divine resources for obedient living 
And that's our goal. We started Sunday morning. If you love me, you'll keep my what? Commandments. This is what God desires, that we be consistent in our obedience to Him. Grace is indispensable in me cultivating a consistent obedience to the Lord. The importance of grace. Number one, you enter into a relationship with God on the basis of grace. Now, being good Baptists, most of us understand this. Most of us understand that we enter into a relationship with God only on the basis of grace. Read this one with me off the screen. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. You've heard that passage since Sunday school days, since vacation Bible school days. We get this down. Now, it's interesting. In the passage, I've highlighted two words, grace and works, because these two words represent two approaches to a relationship with God. One is a correct approach. One is incorrect. One is true. One is false. In Matthew 7, Jesus talked about two roads. You remember the parable? There are two roads. There's the broad road, and it's crowded. It's easy, and it leads to destruction. There's the narrow road. Few find it, and it leads to life. The broad road is the road of works. The default for most human beings, the spiritual default is a works-based salvation. What do you mean, Greg? I have to earn God's favor. I have to earn God's forgiveness. If I perform, God rewards me and God gives me his favor. If you took all of the world religions, excluding the Christian faith, all the world's religions, the philosophies, and you group them together, they would fall into this category. The premise is, I must perform, I must do something to earn God's favor. Now, let me tell you why that's the human default. Because at the end of the day, who's the star? Who's the center of attention? Who gets the pat on the back? so that no one may boast. See, that appeals to us because we can boast about what we've done. We're back to pride. The root sin is the sin of pride. But then there's the narrow road. There's the true way. It's the way of grace. The premise is completely reversed. God says, you could never earn my favor. You'll never be deserving of my love. I understand that. You can't make yourself worthy. So I'm going to give you what you can't earn and will never deserve. That's why it's called a gift. It's the gift of God. This is where humility comes into play. We must humble ourselves and receive the gift. God says, I can't expect you to come up to me, so I'm going to come down to you. I will meet you at your greatest place of need, and I will give you forgiveness and acceptance and approval and You'll become part of my forever family. Grace versus works. Now, watch. Most of us start the Christian life with the grace mentality. We get this. We start the Christian life with the grace mentality, but if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves moving back to our spiritual default mode of works and performance. I got to work harder for God, I got to do more for God. It's all on my shoulders. God will be so disappointed in me if I fail. We have reverted from a grace mentality back to a works, a performance mentality. A second premise in understanding the importance of grace. Your relationship with God will grow in proportion to your understanding of grace. In proportion. In other words, you never graduate from grace in the Christian life. You never check grace off your list. Been there, done that, I'm ready to move on. You never graduate from the school of grace. You just continue to grow in grace. Here's my prayer for us in these days, Second Peter 3.18, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some of you are struggling spiritually. Why? You stopped growing in grace. You stopped growing in grace. Let me introduce you to Mr. and Mrs. Ira Yates. 
Now, in the 1920s, the Yates family was living in West Texas. Have I mentioned to you folks that I am from the great state of Texas? All right, okay, just checking. Now, these folks lived out in West Texas. I pastored out in that part of the world. It's barren. They were farmers and ranchers out there, and I mean, it is dry. If you get a foot of rain a year, that was a good year. It's dry. It is flat. It is so flat out there, you can stand on your front porch and watch your dog run away for three days. (laughs) So here they are. They're scratching out a living, farming and ranching, hand-to-mouth existence. One day, knock on the door. A geologist from an oil company. Mr. Yates, we've been doing some testing in your area, and we suspect that there is a significant amount of oil on your property. If you'll sign this paper and let us drill some test wells, if we find oil, you will be a wealthy man. He thought, I've got nothing to lose. They drilled the test well. They found what at the time was the largest reservoir of oil in the continental United States. Over a billion barrels of oil has come out of the Yates Pool. It's still producing oil almost 90 years later. Overnight, he literally goes from rags to riches. Now watch. At what point did Mr. Yates become the owner of that oil and all the wealth it represented? You say, well, when they drilled that well and they found the oil. No. The moment he purchased the property, all of that oil and all the wealth it represented was his. He didn't know what he had. He was living on wealth, but living in poverty because he did not know what he had. There is a reservoir of grace available to every child of God, but sadly, many of us have left it untapped. We're living a spiritually impoverished life because we've not appropriated the grace that God has made available to us. All right, I want to introduce you to Two dimensions of grace tonight. Two dimensions of grace. The first that we'll call saving grace. Now, we've already been talking about uh, saving grace. That's that Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 kind of grace that we've already talked about. Through His work of justification, God has saved you from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. All right, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Turn with me there. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Romans 5, 2, through him, Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, pause just a moment. Some big words in there, but they are the vocabulary of faith. We need to understand them. We have been justified by faith. The word justified, it's a legal term. Paul comes from a legal background. He draws on that. To be justified means to be tried and pronounced not guilty. Not guilty. Because you and I have put our faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Not in our own goodness because we have none. Not in our own ability to perform because we have no ability. We've placed our faith and trust in Christ alone. We have now been justified. God has pronounced us not guilty of our sin in his sight. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never have the peace of Christ till you are at peace with Christ. And through the miracle of the new birth, God's work of justification, I have peace with Christ. It gets better. Verse 2, through faith we have access into this grace in which we stand. Now, I love that phrase, we stand in grace. Here's the picture I have. As I stand before God, I stand in a place of grace. Grace is under me. Grace to the left. Grace to the right. Grace in the front. Grace in the rear. Everywhere I stand in a place of grace. That means you stand in a place of favor with God. You are accepted by God. You are approved by God. You are now a part of the body of Christ. That's what it means to stand in grace. Now watch. 
Standing in grace means there's nothing I can do to improve my status with God, nor is there anything I can do to make it less. God has placed me in this place of grace. Ephesians 1, 7, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, I want you to catch these phrases. We stand in grace. Because we stand in grace, we have access to the riches of grace. What is the riches of grace? It's God's forgiveness. How much forgiveness is available to you? More than you will ever need. You have access to that. My trespasses, my sins have been forgiven. Now, here's how I understand that passage. When I come, place my faith and trust in Christ, God pronounces me not guilty. Watch. All of my sins, past, present, future, have all been forgiven. Now, you say, Greg, Sunday night you said that we have to confess our sins so that we can experience God's forgiveness. Absolutely. How do you reconcile those? As I stand before God, we use the phrase judicially, God has pronounced me not guilty of all sin, past, present, and future, but I am still instructed to confess sins that I might experience that forgiveness for the sake of the relationship. Let me explain. Eighteen months ago, my wife and I came on full-time with Life Action. I'd been speaking part-time, but 18 months ago, we took the plunge. That means that we moved out of a 3,000-square-foot house into a 300-square-foot trailer. There was a little adjustment in the process. See, in a 3,000-square-foot house, we could hide. I could go upstairs, she'd stay downstairs. You know, you have an unhappy day. We could hide. You can't hide in a 300-square-foot trailer. It's been great for our marriage. we got to work through stuff. Most of the days in the trailer are good days. Occasionally, there are bad days. Usually my fault. On those rare bad days, now watch, listen. On those rare bad days, when we are not enjoying intimacy, we are not enjoying oneness, we are not enjoying harmony, are we any less married? And the answer is no. My marriage is a legal matter. We're no less married, but we're not enjoying the benefits of a married relationship. And so how do I restore the fellowship by seeking her forgiveness, humbling myself? And so it is with the Lord. Pastor, I know this has happened to you. Folks come in, sit down, we start to talk, and they'll say something like this. Now, now Greg, I know that God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. How many times have we heard that I just can't forgive myself? As a young and experienced pastor, I really didn't know what to do with that. You know, I would say, well, well try harder. <laughs> you know, get over it. Just, I didn't know what to say. But as I began to study God's Word on this matter, I find nowhere in Scripture I've given the authority to forgive myself. Matthew 9, 6, Jesus says only the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. The problem is not that you can't forgive yourself. Stop making it about you. Here's the issue. You have yet to fully accept what it means to stand in grace. You've said the riches of grace are not sufficient for you. My first pastorate was in rural northeastern Oklahoma. I emphasize rural. I mean, it was a little, just a bump in the road, maybe 500 people. I was out one day making some, uh, some visits, you know, with church members, and I was driving home. We lived in a little parsonage right across from the church. And as I approached the little town, all I could see was smoke. I got a little closer, and I saw flames. The prairie was on fire. It was a windy day. The prairie, and it was bearing down on our little town. And I whipped into the driveway. I ran into the house. I said, sweetheart, the, the, the fire is coming. You know, the town's about to burn down. I had seen cars parked out there, and guys were gathering to fight the fire. And I said, I, I got to go out there and fight the fire. And she said, you don't know anything about fighting fires. And I said, I know, but I'm the husband and the protector, you know. I had worked in the oil field a couple of years earlier, so I had these big boots, and I thought, well, I could at least help stamp it out, you know, so. I put on my big boots and I park the car and I walk out there. 
I start to walk up to the fire line, and sure enough, there, there's a little fire, a little flame. Right? And I step. Well, that felt pretty good. And there was another one, and I walked over, and I got it. And then I looked right in front of me, and a guy was lighting matches and dropping them on the grass. I said, buddy, what are you doing? You know what he was doing. He said, we're going to create a controlled burn, a backfire, so that when the fire comes, it'll extinguish Itself. You see, God has woven into nature a law, a natural law. Something can only burn once. Something can only burn once. And so that truth in the natural law has a parallel in his spiritual law. Now hear me, we talked Sunday night about the cross of Christ. Understand that Jesus' death on the cross was not just a demonstration of his love for you. It was that, but much more. On the cross, a transaction was taking place. The holy wrath of God for our sin burned on his son and burned up. There's none left for you. That's why Romans 8, 1 screams from the page, there is now therefore no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. We were in a testimony service Sunday morning, Manchester, Tennessee, and a young couple stood before the congregation. She said, I feel compelled to share. A year ago, I aborted my first child. She says, I did not tell him because I knew he would try to fight me. So I told him after the fact that I had lost the baby. She said, but it was my choice to abort. She said, it's been the worst year of my life. Guilt and shame and condemnation. And I felt surely God could never forgive me. And she said, this week as I began to understand grace, I realized God can forgive me. God will forgive me. And I'm here to say that God has forgiven me. And the reason I want to make this public, she said, because there are other women in this room and I know what you're going through because of that decision. And she said, I want you to know that that decision does not place you beyond the grace of God. A second dimension of grace now that's saving grace. A second dimension of grace is what we're going to call sustaining grace. Sustaining grace. Through his work of sanctification, God is saving you from the power of sin. Now, sanctification related to the word holy, we talked about Sunday night. Sanctification is the process of you becoming more like Jesus. It's the present tense of your salvation. You've been saved from the penalty of sin, but God is also saving you from the power of sin. He's breaking the grip of sin upon your life. Sustaining grace is critical in this process. Now go back to the text with me. Look at verse 17. Romans 5, 17. For if because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now pause just a moment. Reign in life. We've talked about a place of grace. We've talked about the riches of grace. There is a reign of grace. When you and I stand in grace, it means we're in a position to reign in life. Reign over what? Reign over the power of indwelling sin. Pick it up in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let me paraphrase for you verse 20. Where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. Here's the paraphrase. The more you sin, the more grace you get. That's what we just read. The more you sin, the more grace you get. Now, why did God set it up in that way? Because the more you sin, the more grace you need. Grace to be forgiven, plus grace to overcome that power of indwelling sin. 
the more you sin, the more grace you get. Now, someone's sitting there thinking, hey, here's my get-out-of-jail-free card, okay? That means I just say a prayer. That means I walk an aisle. That means I say, Jesus, come into my life, and then I can live however I want because of grace. Almost as if Paul was reading your mind. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Pause again. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Shall I willfully, deliberately sin knowing God will take care of that? I cannot tell you how many church members have sat across from me told me they've decided to divorce. There's no biblical basis for it whatsoever. They just don't want to be married there anymore. And when I challenge them on their commitment, they say, I know, I know it's disobedience to God, but he'll forgive me. But he'll forgive me. That is an abuse of grace. The phrase, by no means, is the strongest in the negative, the original language. May it not be, absolutely not, will God allow us to manipulate him in that regard. And then he adds, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Died to sin, you say, Greg, I'm a Christ follower, but I'll be honest, that, that sin's still alive and kicking. The word died to sin might be better translated, those who are no longer under the dominion of sin. Those who are no longer under the power of sin. That's really what the idea is here. In other words, standing in grace means, get ready, I don't have to sin. Let me show you that in the text. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal uh, mortal body that you obey its passions. Now pause. If if I understand what Paul just said, this is a command of Scripture. He just said to stop sinning. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Remember, sin is an indwelling entity. Sin is the usurper. Sin is the internal adversary. When you were born into this world, one of the things you inherited from your father power of indwelling sin. I have this force, this entity into me, in me, this, this dynamic in me that keeps rebelling. Here's a big contrast. Unbelievers have no power to fight that. They are slaves to sin. They are virtual captives to their sin. The difference for the believer is we don't have to sin anymore. We stand in grace. Look down at verse 13. Do not present your members, your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, your members as instruments uh, to God as instruments of righteousness. Look at 14. Sin will have no dominion over you. You're not under law, but under grace. I.e., you don't have to sin. So what does that mean? Every time I sin... It's because I choose to sin. So here's the problem. We gave up the fight against sin without even showing up for the battle. We just gave in. Nobody's perfect. As if in that some way justifies or rationalizes your disobedience to God. Nobody's perfect. And the goal is not perfection this side of heaven, but the goal is consistent obedience. And under the reign of grace, I can consistently obey. This fight with sin begins when you take ownership of your sin. You have chosen to disobey God. Well, now, pastor, if you were married to this person that I'm married to, you'd have an anger problem too. If you had these wild kids, you'd have an anger problem too. Stop excusing your sin. I was raised by an angry mom. That's all I know. So I have a right to be angry. No, you don't. Stop excusing your sin. You've surrendered to sin without even a fight. Let me illustrate it like this. Guy comes to my office, sits down, and says, uh, says, Greg, you know, I work this place with with all these foul-mouthed guys, and and they just use horrendous language, and, and 
I, I just can't help it. I hear it all day, and I find myself using the same language, even taking the Lord's name in vain. I know it's so wrong. I feel so guilty. Here's how I respond. I'm shocked. You know, I've been with you a lot. We, we've had a lot of conversations. I've never heard you use foul language. I've never heard you take the Lord's name in vain. Oh, Pastor Greg, I would never use that language around you. <laughs> now, what did they just admit to me? They can choose not to sin. And if you can choose not to sin, you can choose to consistently obey. Oh, Pastor Greg, everybody goes to bed at night. It's just me, and I get on that computer, and I go to those places I shouldn't go, and it just beats me up night after night. I feel so guilty. I'm shocked. I've been in your house before. We've watched TV together. I've never watched you view pornographic images. Pastor Greg, I would never do that. You see the point? It's time to show up for the battle. It's time to stop excusing our sin and rationalizing our skin, our sin, acknowledging I'm choosing to disobey you, Lord. And so under grace, the dominion of grace, I can choose to obey. Fort Wayne, Indiana, two years ago. The associate pastor told me before the service, the testimony service, what he was going to share just so I would be ready. Two months earlier, he finally decided that after 30 years of addiction to pornography, he would stop it. He stopped excusing and rationalizing and justifying. The first conversation he had was with his wife and men. That's always your first conversation. She graciously forgave him. After two months, he was free. He was experiencing true freedom in his life. And so that night, he stood before his congregation and acknowledged publicly, after 30 years of addiction, God has set me free. I'm sharing this with you for two reasons. Number one, that you can hold me accountable. But number two, I want some man in this room who's struggling as well to know you don't have to live into that. I stood up and I said, brother, at the end of the service, I want you to go to our prayer room. That's going to be a place of grace tonight. And I said, any man in this room who has had this struggle, here's a brother who's been there who understands, who's found victory, and you can find it also. We dismissed that night, and that room was full of men full of men who were repenting and beginning to take first steps toward freedom. Why? Because for the first time, they were understanding grace. This idea of sustaining grace is based on 2 Corinthians 9, 8. I want you to read it with me off the screen, but every time we come to a word that's bold, I want you to say that a little louder, all right? Here we go. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Good job, class. I did that for emphasis. All, all abound. We call this a string of superlatives. God's grace is sufficient for you, regardless of the challenge you're facing. And so our definition of sustaining grace, grace is the dynamic quality of the life of God within me that gives me the desire and power to live in harmony with God and His Word. Is this a sweet deal? God gives me the desire and power to live in harmony with Him and with His Word. So how do I get more grace? Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want to put it together. Watch. We stand in a place of grace. We have access to the riches of grace. We live under the reign of grace. And now for the believer, the child of God, it's a throne of grace. Now for the unbeliever, it's a throne of judgment, a terrible place. But not for we who've confessed Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, repented of sin and chosen to follow Him. For us, a throne of grace. How do you get more grace? This is tough. You have to ask for it. 
Is that what it says? To receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need? How do you get more grace? You have to ask for it. The first time I heard this message back in 1996, our revivalists use an illustration that I've never forgot. He said, imagine finding yourself in heaven, and to your shock as you're standing there, what you see in heaven is this long line, farther than you can see, of garage doors, one after the other, after the other. And suddenly as you're standing there, a garage door goes flying open and an ambulance goes sailing out. And over here another one opens and an ambulance goes sailing out. And finally you find someone and you say, what in the world is going on here? This is the grace garage. You see, a child of God somewhere has just cried out to God. And God has answered with an ambulance of grace. Where do you need God's grace tonight? There's a young mother in this room. I don't know you by name. I lived for a while with a young mother here. I know what your life is like. I know how tired and frustrated that is with those small children. And you find yourself succumbing again and again to anger. And you don't want to be an angry mom. You don't want that to be an angry home. And finally you say, God, I can't do this anymore. And you cry out. There's your grace ambulance. There's a man in this room that's struggling. Vulgar language, pornography, some other destructive, addictive habit. And you've fought and fought and you've tried your best and you've failed and failed and it's time for you to ask for grace. God, I can't do this on my own. God, I need grace. Here's your grace ambulance. Where do you need grace tonight? For some, it's again settling this matter of guilt and condemnation. This idea that you have to in some way forgive yourself. You've never fully accepted the the extent of God's forgiveness made possible by grace. And that's where you need grace tonight. You've been beating yourself up, living under self-imposed condemnation. There's a father, a husband sitting in here. I know Shane's been tough the last couple of nights. I get to hear it every week, guys. Give me a break. You've been sitting there thinking, this is so hard. I do want to be a, a good, godly husband and father, but this is so hard. You need God's grace. Student, that you're standing alone and everybody else has given away their moral purity and you think I'm the only one and peer pressure. God's grace is sufficient for you. Regardless of the past, you can start from this point on and prepare for that person God has for you. God's grace is sufficient for you.